God, I pray that you would expose us this morning, expose me, so that we would be truly covered by the righteousness found in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, I had an interesting meeting this week. I, I went down to the Rainbow Center in downtown Tacoma. Now, through education, advocacy, and celebration, the Rainbow Center expands resources and safe space for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community, also known as LGBTQ. I walked in the Rainbow Center, and I, I immediately felt a lot of eyes focused in, honed in on me as I walked in, and I, I, I remember feeling a sense of awkwardness. Uh, the woman I was there to meet with asked me why I, I came. And suddenly the room went silent. There was a handful of people in, in the main room, and I realized everyone was waiting to hear my response. And I'll be honest, I was afraid. I, I was afraid I might say the wrong thing or be received in the, in the wrong way. I said, my name is Randy. I'm a, I'm a pastor at a local church in Tacoma, and we are uh, going through a, a teaching series that's touching on the hot-button issues in our culture today. And we are framing up the teaching series as desiring to grow as humble listeners. And one of the ways we want to grow as humble listeners is to our surrounding community. And this week we're on the LGBTQ topic, and I, I was told by a friend of mine that I needed a lot of help to learn and realize more about this community than I, than I thought I knew, and I totally agreed with her. So I said, I am here to listen and learn. Um, I would love to hear about your vision and story behind the center. And suddenly, right after, like immediately right after I was done talking, this trans, this seems really weird. Is it fine now? Okay. So like, suddenly, <laughs> that's good special effects, maybe something new going on. But suddenly, right after I was done talking, a sweet transgender lady, she stood up and said, thank you. And she came over to me and, and gave me a huge hug, and, and I thanked her in return for being so welcoming to me. And I'll just say, I, I went there to grow as a humble listener, and while that did indeed happen, I also gained something much more valuable. And I, I'm going to share more about that in the rest of the story later on. But first, what I want to share is here, here's where we're going to go today. The first thing we're going to talk about, I'm going to summarize the biblical view of homosexuality, which for the sake of this teaching will encompass the LGBTQ community belief system. Second, what does this mean for us as we look to walk this out? And this is where I'm going to share some of my learnings at the Rainbow Center and some practical steps for us to consider. And then third, my friend Kyleo, who just flew in last night, he is a, a deacon, which some of you might not be familiar with that, that term. It's a servant leader um, in a church, um, but he serves as a deacon at a Soma church in Philadelphia. And he's going to share from his own story and put some more flesh on the topic, so I'm really excited for you guys to hear from him. I want to I say something before we dive in. If I offend anyone here because of certain language I use, please know my intent is not, is not to do anything that would dishonor or devalue you in any way. Please come and let me know afterwards and, and we can process. I would love to process together. So thank you ahead in advance. So getting into to the topic, what, what does the Bible say? The whole Bible tells one big overarching story about the world. And, and the key to unlocking how to engage life's mysteries and discover the pur purpose of life is to understand who's at the center of the story. The story in the Bible makes clear that it is about God, and it's ultimately not about us. The, 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 there are only actually a handful of passages that mention homosexuality. However, interestingly, the imagery and language of sexuality is throughout the entire story. In the beginning, we have a wedding. We see in Genesis 2, which we've been talking about last couple weeks. In the end, we have another wedding with Revelation 19, God with the, his people. And in the middle of that wonderful story, we have Israel, God's people, depicted as an unfaithful wife, a harlot, an adulteress, within her covenant relationship between her and God. And then we also see in the middle that Jesus, the Son of God, comes in the climax of the story as a bridegroom. And through his life and death, he rescues a people who's the unfaithful wife, the harlot, the adulteress, which 
Turns out it's all of humanity, not just Israel. And he still comes and he takes us as his bride, the church. So him who is holy and we who are unholy, he becomes one with us through Jesus. And we see that the kingdom today is Jesus through his life and death. It's us under him and we're like uh, at a wedding banquet that are people who are being prepared for the bridegroom as he returns for his bride. And sex and how we engage in sexuality and and gender roles, it's meant to tell a bigger story than our own personal story. And that's what we've been talking about the last couple weeks, that sex actually points beyond itself to God's intimacy in Jesus and his purpose for the world. Whether it's sexual union between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, Ephesians 5 says, which we talked about two weeks ago, Or it's the single person living a celibate life, telling the story that Jesus is better than sex, than anything, as we talked about in 1 Corinthians 7 last week. And it's important to understand that the wider biblical story, in order to rightly understand the handful of passages that refer to homosexuality, in order to see how they fit within. Too often we can run the mistake of looking to the Bible as this list of rules we go to in order to create boundary markers that keep hurting people away and and ostracized from from community, which is the opposite of what God's overarching story is all about, is bringing the the broken into union with him. So I want to touch on a few of these key passages that do talk about homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22 and chapter 20, verse 13. Some of these, I'm only putting a reference on the screen because you can write them down, but I'm just going to state that those two verses make explicit that the pro- excuse me, make explicit the prohibition of male same-sex intercourse. The question then you have to then ask is, is this command something that carries over into the New Testament? Because there are many Levitical laws to follow, like circumcision and dietary laws, and the list goes on. Therefore, which of these carry over and ought to be applied to Christianity? That's the work we got to do as the church, as we submit to the Spirit and submit to God's Word. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, 1 Timothy 1 through 10, Romans 1, 26 to 27, makes clear that it actually does. Now, here's an important note the term homosexuals did not exist in either Greek or in Hebrew. A word that did exist, now I'm going to get a little scholarly on you guys, but I apologize for that. I think this is important. Did exist is malakoi, which is often used in the Hellenistic Greek as a slang term to describe the passive partners, often young boys, used by older men for sex. Now there are some who say, these passages say that anytime you see homosexual used in the New Testament, it is referring to that, and not to consenting adults who are in love and desire a committed relationship. However, there's another word used in these passages. It's very important. The word is arsenikoitai. Scholars have shown that this word, arsenikoitai, is a translation of the Hebrew word derived directly from Leviticus. Those passages, 18.22 and 20, verse 13, that put a prohibition on homosexuality and used it also in rabbinic text to refer to homosexual intercourse. Furthermore, the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, it translates Leviticus 20.13 with that same Greek word used for homosexuality in the New Testament. So just to be clear, homosexuality is never referred to in a positive manner, only a prohibition in the Bible. Also, there are other places that use the word pornea, often translated fornication. And in the New Testament, for example, if you want to reference Acts 15, verses 28 to 29. And it's used as an umbrella term, which includes homosexuality in it, as well as other sexually immoral relationships that are not under a covenant marriage relationship between a man and a woman under Jesus. Here's what's important. It's important to keep in mind what God is actually up to with all this. Is life about figuring out God's do's and don'ts? Is he out to get us and make life mean and miserable if, if, if we get it wrong? Are these passages for our defense or our protection? Passages we keep in our hip pocket in case we need to prove someone who disagrees with us wrong? Is that the purpose? 
You see, when, when considering these passages, we must realize the bigger story and God's intent and his purpose for his glory. That's about him and not us. Romans 1, 18 through 32, which I would love it if you turn to your Bibles in that passage, will help us tie things together. This is the most important passage, I believe, in the Bible that explains the prohibition of homosexual behavior in the explicit theological context. Romans 1, verse 18, Paul starts off and he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. From the get-go, I think what's really important to to start off with is God's wrath revealed in Paul's passage here is not God's hammer that is going to come down on sinful behavior. In fact, the list of sinful behaviors mentioned, the unnatural relations exchanged between women and women and men and men and envy, gossip, disobedient to parents, the list of sinful behaviors in this passage are only the fruit of of a much deeper root issue. The human race has been infected by a fall that we see in Genesis 3 that we've been talking about the last couple weeks that's much greater than our immoral behavior. And this is why Romans 2.1, actually right on the heels of this passage, Paul says, even the self-righteous are condemned before God. Those who condemn others in their behavior like homophobia or, and discrimination does, for example, is condemned. And the deeper sin issue we all have been born into, it's not honoring God and not giving thanks to him for being God, exchanging the truth about God for a lie about God. It's not acknowledging God. It's worshiping and serving what he has created versus the creator himself. And this is the deeper issue because it's replacing God with us, with me. It's pride of myself over God. It's looking at the world, trying to make sense of it by starting with me. What makes me most happy? What is most fulfilling to me? How can I best make use of my life right there? That's our greater problem. Not our sexual orientation or who we might be having sex with. Instead, it is who you look to as who is the hero of your story. Who is life all about? Who do I go to to make sense of myself in life? Because in the beginning, we were made to image God and worship him as such. And that was supposed to be the natural way we understood life. 
and the way we understood how to enjoy life. It was based on, not me first, it was based on who he is and what he's done. And now, namely in Jesus, what he's done. And then that tells me who I am and how, what life is about and, and how we enjoy life. But since Adam and Eve, we, we, we flipped it. We start with us and we make this story about us. And now, when, so when Paul's saying God's wrath is revealed, he's saying the result of him giving up us over to our rejection of him, the result of that, the fruit, the fruit that's produced of our rebellion against him is what he has shown is his wrath revealed. He said, okay, go ahead, go after it, guys. And the result we have is a debased mind. We're futile in our thinking. Our hearts are darkened. Because what has become natural to us, what just feels right, was never meant to be natural in the way God created us and the world. The things we look to to find enjoyment and pleasure, it's not what God intended. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have ever surfed before, but I grew up as a surfer. And in surfing sometimes, especially when the waves are big and the water's deep, you can get tumbled so badly that you don't know right side from up as you're under the water. And so as you're aggressively trying to make it to top just to get some air, you're actually going the wrong direction away from the surface because you're so disoriented, which can be very dangerous. Now, a lot of us, we have, we're tethered to a buoy called a surfboard, and that line tells us, hey, right side up this way. But if you don't have that or if it breaks off, it actually could be lethal because when you're trying to get up, you pass out and you could die from drowning. And what Paul's saying here in Romans, he's kind of sobering humanity. And he's saying, you guys have been tossed so much. You're on this tailspin. You have no idea. Right side from up, you have no idea. What feels so right is actually leading to death. And we all need to be rescued. We all have been born into the same sin issue. You see, we're all in the same playing field. All of us. That's why it's actually pointless at the end of the day to compare ourselves with others' lifestyle choices. It's pointless. Or it's pointless to argue nature versus nurture and its effects on same-sex orientation because we're all born into a fallen world and things are not as God intended from the beginning. You see, we needed God to do something drastic. We need God to do a reorientation, not merely of our behavior, but our heart. That's why God put forth his son to reveal God's righteousness within a world blinded by its unrighteousness. Romans 3, 24, 26 tells us explicitly how this works. How when Jesus was put forth, his, his work saves us by his life and death. You see, God's not this big, angry old guy in the sky that's mad because his people figured out other ways to find enjoyment besides his boring old traditional rules. That's not what's going on. You see, that's called religion. That's not the gospel. God put forth Jesus to say, there is joy, there is splendor that you don't know that you have forgotten. And it's found in intimacy with me as you come and be embraced by my son. That's why he put forth Jesus. He put forth the perfect one that we just sang about, who is good, right, and perfect, so that he would be on display and we would see we're a mess and he is perfect. And we would find life that is joyful beyond all measure and all comparison. But here's the deal. But for you to see the joy and have the intimacy through the cross, we got to first see that Jesus at the cross weakens us. We're weak. We have to become fools. We have to be dependent. Before intimacy will happen with God, we have to be broken before God. Can we bow our knee to Jesus as king and say, not my life, it's your life. My life begins and ends with you because Jesus, you are the only one who is good, right, and perfect. We're humbled at the cross. Jesus is the only one who can rewire our thinking Jesus is the only one who can bring light into the dark, hidden places of our hearts. 
psychology, philosophy, sociology, education. It tweaks thought and action or tries to explain it, which is super helpful at times. But that isn't enough. We need a new heart because we all have been born into sin. We all need to be born again, the Bible says, into Christ's righteousness. So from within, he can begin to mature our desires with his desires as it was from the beginning. And to help us realize our enjoyment of sin is really meant for a deeper, more satisfying enjoyment of him. In fact, one day he's, he's going to do that fully. Romans 8.23, Paul says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. And what does it say at the end? The redemption of our what? Our bodies. There's a day coming where we'll have the full capacity to take in the pleasure of enjoying God. But today he gives us a spirit, his spirit to give us a foretaste, and he's preparing us for that day. Romans 8, 11, Paul says this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If Jesus overcame death, follow me, if Jesus overcame death, he can overcome old familiar desires and give you new ones. New ones that God has intended, that God has the power to create and manifest because the spirit of Jesus lives in us. But here's the deal. Sometimes I'm concerned we hear this without really hearing it. We can get discouraged by this truth, I even believe, because maybe we don't feel the empowerment but I believe this is to miss the point of the Spirit in you. I've made this mistake many times in my own life, my walk. God's power isn't to be treated as an internal self-esteem booster. The Bible says God's power is made perfect in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9 Now talk about feeling counterintuitive to what feels natural. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Doesn't feel right? Here's the deal. God doesn't always just get rid of our sin struggle. In fact, some of us are here today with struggles that are relentless. Maybe some of you are here and you've been struggling with sin. Maybe same-sex sexual behavior. Maybe heterosexual sexual behavior outside of marriage, maybe pornography and masturbation, and, and you're tired, perhaps, of confessing it to others, or, or you can't, and, and you haven't, and you're ashamed to do it. Maybe because you believe your struggle must mean that, well, God is very far from you, and, and you have to fix yourself in order to be accepted by God and others. You see, being truly weak is being exposed before God. And what if God is allowing this sin struggle because he wants to free you by exposing a deeper sin struggle? A deeper sin struggle that is about comparing yourself with others or worrying yourself to death about what others might think of you when they find out about your sin. As the Bible calls pride. Man, that person is better or further along than me or I'll, I'll never become spiritually mature. Or man, he only struggles with having a bad temper while... I, as a man, struggle with lusting after other men. I, I, I have it so much worse than others. Or, I will never be able to stop looking at porn. Temptation is too great. I just need to hide and deal with it. People won't know what to do with me. They'll, they'll push me out of community. But what if God... But what if God is looking to remove the inner pride before the outward behavior? What if God is looking to remove the inner pride before the outward behavior? Where he wants to teach you how to be truly weak and needy before him and others so his power would be made known. His power to truly cover and heal our brokenness. The power that makes us real family. And think about this. What if God wants to start a revival 
What if God wants to start a revival, an outpouring of his spirit through your humble, obedient boasting in your weakness? That through your boasting and weakness, the spirit decides to release others to be free to do the same thing. Because they see a covering happening. And it brings about a conviction in those of us around you who have self-righteousness and pride lurking deep in our hearts, unbeknownst to us. And the thing you thought would prove God's distance from you actually proves God's nearness and power in and through you. What if the thing you thought that made you the worst Christian is the thing God wants to use to bring honor to you as his servant and to his name because his power is made perfect in your weakness? God's power is made perfect in our weakness, not our strength. Don't miss it. God's goal is not to have a group of well-packaged, grade-A heterosexuals who have polished families who act like they have it all together to represent him. But people who believe God and Jesus, he comes down and he enters into our sin and struggle and he enables us to keep boasting about his wonderful grace and mercy upon sinners who don't deserve it, but get it. Why are we here? We praise you, Jesus, because you don't judge us according to our sin. May we boast in your glory in our weakness, Lord. Why would it not be this way? After all, Christ's death, what did Christ's death do? It brought about a resurrection that brought what the Spirit who started the church. It will be our weakness, family, our dependency that manifests God's power where people around us and in us will say, God must be amongst you because there's no other explanation because we're so weak and broken and needy and Jesus is the only one who satisfies our deepest longing and healings. That's why we're the church. Not because we have our act together, because Jesus has saved sinners. Where are you at with Jesus this morning? Have you shown him? Are you exposed? Does he know your sin? Where are you at with Jesus? If nothing else, please take whatever might be causing any of you with any fear or anger or even cynicism and meet with Jesus. Who am I? I'm I'm a guy just sharing convictions of Jesus. Meet with Jesus. Get into his word. I didn't come to know Jesus through someone preaching. I came to know Jesus because the Spirit convicted me to read his word because it challenged me and God showed me who he was. Go to his word. Sit with Jesus. And I just want to say this. If some are choosing certain scripture passage over others, I just want to let you know we are on a tailspin. You might be holding on to your sin too tightly and enjoying it too much. And Jesus is wanting to remove that. That's where that challenge is coming from. Sit with him. He's fine with the fight. He's fine with the struggle. Sit with him. God has done a lot in my my heart this week. My visit at the Rainbow Center was a significant reason. As I walked around the center, hearing about the things they offer and the, the people and stories that tend to come and go, and the story that sparked the beginnings of the center, I realized this place was a refuge from the city. I was humbled. I was humbled by the stories themselves, by the thoughts of, that were going on in my heart and my moments of processing with God. I heard stories of gay bashing that take place in homeless shelters. I heard about countless teenagers kicked out of homes. I heard about teenagers running away from home and community because of the verbal abuse or the quiet shunning and shaming that was too much to handle, it was clear these are people looking for a home. And I asked, my fr- I asked her who, who's causing these issues and pains, and she said it was mainly the church communities. I asked her if she would share her story as well, and she told me how she was ostracized by her church community after she came out. The only place she could find community was joining a, a queer club on campus. Now, maybe some of your hearts might be quick to say, well, it is their sin. It's, it's, it's on them. But what did Jesus come to do? What did Jesus come to do? He came to serve. 
die for sin. So what if it, it is because of their sin? That's why Jesus came to die, isn't it? What about our sin? What did he come to do? Die for our sin. Rescue us. Why would we not be quick to respond, pray and look to serve and love them and remedy the perception of the church in Tacoma? I was humbled even more by my thoughts throughout my visit that the Spirit was helping me capture. What would other church leaders think of me if they saw me here? What would one of you think of me if you saw me there? As God was working in my heart in that moment, and my tons of love I had for them, what would you guys think about me as I, as I said that with you this morning? Later on that day, I was holding a bunch of pamphlets and reading material from the Rainbow Center, and I noticed my heart rise with fear, wondering if people I talked with noticed me carrying those things. What did they think? It's hard to even share this. There was a time I was thinking to myself, man, I, can, I really enjoy talking to them and, and getting to know this woman back at the center, and, and I wanted to be friends with her and get to know others apart of the Rainbow Center and really be friends with them. I, just, I had an overwhelming sense of like joy to get to know them, and, and I'd wrestle. All of a sudden, a thought would come bolt, bolting in. Man, should I tell her what I believe first, though? Because I don't want this friendship to go too far down, and then it gets all weird because she finds out what I believe. It's different from what she might believe. And then I thought, why don't I wrestle with those thoughts around other people that don't believe what I believe? That was really convicting. Needless to say, I had a lot to process with God throughout the day and the week leading up to this morning, and God had a lot to share with me. Here are just some other things. When I read the Gospels, I'm convinced if Jesus was here, he'd hang out at the Rainbow Center. He wouldn't have any issue with being misunderstood. My time at Rainbow Center wasn't me merely just showing them God's love for them, which he did remind me that he did love them, and that's why he had me there. But he also wanted me to learn more of his love for me, how there was still pride in my heart that needed to be removed in order for intimacy to grow between him and me. You see, growing in intimacy with God, it still goes back to that basic. Weakness leads to intimacy with God. Dependency leads to intimacy with God. He had some stuff he had to remove and he had to humble me. And the fruit of that was deeper relationship. He did this by helping me capture those thoughts that were coming to my heart that I, I really wasn't noticing. And he had me process this with him. And this is one final thing. And he had me process, I feel led to share with you guys. He said, Randy, if you had two sets of neighbors, one neighbor is a straight couple living together, though not married, and the other a gay couple. Why would you find it significantly easier to love on and be family to the straight couple rather than the gay one? I don't know. Would you have this struggle hanging out at a bar or inviting your non-believing neighbors to watch the football game? No. So God helped me with the following conclusion. I think their sin is worse than others, and not only others, but my own. I forgot how much I'm dependent on God's grace and love for me. Yet, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. May we be humbled at the cross. God was lovingly convicting me and healing me of pride and self-righteousness so I would know his love more and love others more as a result. And family, what makes a family isn't doing Christian things, just like it isn't doing a bunch of immoral things. It's Jesus. He makes a family. And it's us saying, I need Jesus every second. I am no better than anyone, that I deserve death, but I get life in Christ. And that leads, leads into a radical love. And so what I want us to watch out for and walk away with is what I call a legalistic heart boundary marker. A legalistic heart boundary marker. The only boundary marker we should have in our community is Christ. And therefore we ought to accept, befriend people not based on behavior, but based on the gospel. He who knew no sin became sin. That's our boundary marker. So guess what? We get to love everybody. Everybody gets to come in the house. Everybody gets to sit at the table and dine with us. Why? Because one day we will all sit with Jesus for those who've repented and become weak before the cross and our brokenness, and we bring it to Jesus and we see that we're cleaned and we're going to dine with him, not because of our behavior, but because of his grace. And so today we get to give a picture to a watching world that there is grace to be had and there's a place to be accepted in love at the house, in my dinner table, holding my kids. I want a relationship with you because Christ, who is holy and perfect, has come near and is in me. He's one with us. 
We have so much love to give. God, that we would see you. Lord, I pray right now that you would, would you connect our hearts with yours and would you lead us to offer up right now, just silently, anything that we have to offer to you, any conviction. We thank you that your grace is sufficient, that we get to come boldly to the throne of God as we sing. Would you open our hearts? Bless your name, Jesus. It's your name we pray. Amen. Family, I'm going to invite my friend Kylie up. The exercise for this week I'd love for each of you to do is pray through if you have any boundary markers with the LGBT community. Would you do that for me? Would you join me in just humbling ourselves before God and having him examine our heart and pray through if there are any boundary markers that we might have with the LGBTQ community and then ask God what you are supposed to do with that. So my friend Kyleo here is going to share his story and, um, and put some flesh on some of what we've been talking about. I, I will say this as he's getting ready here. Um, as I was parting ways with the woman at the Rainbow Center, saying goodbye and thanking her for her time, I said, you know, I'm both thankful and grieved a place like this exists. And I said, I'm thankful because it sounds like real people that have real needs have nowhere else to go and they're, they're helping them out. But I'm grieved because these hurting people have nowhere else to go in a city where the church tends to be the one who are making them run away. And it led me to wrestle with the thought, what if the church was known less for articulating truth accurately to the world and more known for applying that accurate truth to our own hearts in the world so that Christ would be glorified through our weakness by our words and our actions? I bet we would be known in the city and in Rainbow Center a lot differently. All right, brother. Good job, Randy. Thank you for a perfect um, introduction. You quoted one of my favorite verses. Um, which is Romans 5, 8, and he said it, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died. And the book of Romans goes on a little further to say something that is pivotal, pivotal and important as well, and that it says, at the right time, Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. So it means God died for us when we were at our worst, and it was the right time for him to demonstrate his love for us was when we were in the worst possible state of sinners that we could be. And that always encouraged me throughout my life as I've um, struggled in different areas and in particularly um, as a person who lived, who lives with same-sex attraction to this day. And so I feel um, one of the things Randy laid out very well was the fact that homophobia is as much a sin as homosexuality. Because what it occludes is it occludes the reality that original sin put us all in the same bucket. That heterosexuals struggle just as much as the homosexual in brokenness and in our fallenness. And Jesus is the only answer. He is the bridge over the breach of brokenness to our true identity. And so in that, there's always encouragement and there's hope and there's need for repentance on both sides. And so having said that, um, yeah, I'm, ju I'm just going to shoot right into a little bit of my story, hoping that it encourages. No one comes to faith because God answers all of their questions. We come to faith because God answers the one main inescapable question which plays our very existence as broken human beings. The question of just who is this Jesus? Who is he in relation to the things that I've suffered, the things that I've experienced, and the things that I'm hiding? Is he God? Is he worthy of my obedience, devotion, worship, and sacrifice? God reveals himself to us, and we must respond. There is no negotiation. Where do we stand in relation to this Jesus? This revelation is not without effect because it then begets another question. Who are we? The revelation of Jesus exposes us for who and what we really are. And the sad truth is we are not ready. We are people who would rather pretend. 
I was so uncomfortable in my own skin that I pretended for a very long time. And when Jesus entered into his creation time, the gospel of John records that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. As a fallen human being tainted and tarnished by the depraving effects of original sin, I was born broken in the dark. I was molested in the dark. I responded by learning to have sex in the dark. My definition of love was formed in the dark. I formed an identity in the dark. I lived in secrecy in the dark. Because of my distance from Christ, I came to a dangerous conclusion in my early adolescence. My darkness was light. Having been born broken and then repeatedly sinned against through the brokenness of others could only lead to one tragic end. Negative responses to the sins perpetrated against me. Therefore, in me, there was a natural aversion to the light of the gospel. This light threatened to expose my sins, the deep sense of shame that I carried as a victim of sexual abuse, the fear of being found out for having kept it a secret for so long, the wrong sense of guilt for blaming myself for making this man do to me what he had done. And then the twisted belief in me that somehow and in some way this man had shown love to me because I had never known pure and right physical affection from a man as a child. And even after becoming a Christian, it was many years before I still allowed Christ to shine his light on these hidden places in my heart. I had too much to lose. In the darkness of my experiences, I had formed an autonomous sexual identity of my own making. I was very young when I decided that I wanted to be a strong black woman. In the world into which I was born, there was no such thing as a good man. No, not one. There was no man in our community who had married his woman and had given her and his children their last name. No man around us who was a successful contributor to society in the right standing with public. The mothers were raising us kids. The mothers were putting us through school. The mothers were providing for our means, be it through minor illegal activity or governmental assistance. The women were tucking us kids in at night, and the sisterhood of these ladies, who had all to brave the men as a necessary evil, were keeping our neighborhood together. All the men were deadbeats, drunks, drug addicts, incarcerated womanizers, baby daddies, or physical abusers. My own father fit five of those categories and was evicted from our lives after he blacked both my mom's eyes in a fight one night. And if that was the cultural definition of man and masculinity in my world, then I decided that a man was the last thing I wanted to be. I enrolled into this sisterhood with my eyes wide open. The sheroes of my, of my community became the highest form of good to me, and I vowed that I would be one of them, or better. I would be stronger. Through beauty and sex, I would work my power over men and make them do my bidding. But in the middle of all of that, there was this grace. This unmerited favor of joy that I couldn't shake or get around. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, For he has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has set eternity into the hearts of men so that no man can figure out the work which God has done from beginning to end. Hmm. God's promises anchored me and answered me. God was leading me to the conclusion that my futility might not be forever. I was surprised by joy in the midst of the most unremarkable circumstances because in all of my pain, I was not alone. The cross was proof that Jesus was not just willing to suffer for me, but also to suffer with me. I came to Christ because he drew me, because he revealed himself to me and he is irresistible. I came to Christ because when I did this, I was awakened to the whole new world that I was asleep to my whole life but had also been dreaming of the entire time. I came to Christ because in the revealing of himself to me, I discovered that I was truly more flawed than I had ever thought, but also more loved than I could ever imagine. Despite my brokenness, Jesus loved me, flaws and all. My utter disappointment in myself as a sinner and in people as perpetrators against me was overwhelmed by his amazing love for us both. Jesus loved me a sinner, And he also loved those who had sinned against me. I, who was (laughs) looking. 
I who was looking for love in all the wrong places was pursued by a relentless lover. Jesus did not have to prove to me that my homosexuality was a sin. He just had to prove to me that he was God. My faith yet endures all these years later because Jesus hasn't given up on me. And we are confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you shall complete that good work in the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1 and 6, you need to know that. Commit it to memory, please. Jesus answered my question, the one that really mattered. In my suffering, I questioned God with why. Why was I born this way? Why did this have to be my problem? Why can't I stop? Why can't I change? Why do men keep doing this to me? But as he did for Job in the Old Testament, he answered me not with why, but with who? God showed me himself as sovereign and an almost unbelievably gracious care over me throughout my struggle with sexual identity. I learned of my God just like Job. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes, Job 42, 5 through 6. Job was a righteous man in the Bible who had an amazing reputation before God, angels, demons, and his fellow man. He was also blessed beyond measure, but Job was also afflicted in catastrophic ways. He experienced more grief and pain than the likes of which that some of the worst of criminals deserve. Yet in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job 122. No one had any more reason than Brother Job to shake their fist in God's face and recant their confession of faith. Especially since Job's suffering was from God's own hand because God had recommended Job for trouble. Even Job's own wife told him to just curse God and die. But Job didn't. He maintained his faith. He maintained his integrity because he trusted in God's wisdom more than his own. By faith, Job had a sense that somehow God had not abandoned him. Even though he felt like it, even though it looked like it, and even though his friends and wife said it, Brother Job's faith seemed to peek into the invisible beyond his struggle. In the midst of suffering, Job declared, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. With my eyes I shall behold him and not another. My heart faints within me at the thought. Job 19, 25 through 27. This testimony energized my faith and endurance. Despite his present circumstances, Job had faith that he could one day see God, one for whom it would have been worth it all to have suffered for. Job had a certainty of two things, one that he would see God and two, a resurrection. The certainty of seeing God enabled him to endure pain unimaginable unimaginable, with a hope indestructible. Job's hope for resurrection didn't bring a masochistic pride into his suffering. Instead, it brought a prevailing sense of purpose, and purpose refines suffering. The hope of resurrection does something supernatural for the person of faith. It tethers him between two worlds, the already and the not yet. And it does this by the present work of Jesus' redemption. In other words, the presence of blossoms on a tree now are indicative of a coming harvest of fruit in a future season. Job's experience of God's faithfulness and goodness in the past tethered his faith to certainty of his resurrection to come in the future, which carried him through enduring his trials faithfully in the present. The death of Christ is not the last picture we are left with of him in the story of God. No, we are privileged to behold him risen. So we know that no matter what sins or situations that we have to die to in this life, there is a resurrection power and life that awaits us on the other side of it. There, we'll have, there we will have the vindication. There and then we will have the full inheritance of that which we only enjoy in part now. Christ's resurrection and our union with him gives us the power to live our lives by God's promises and not by our explanations.
for the just shall live by faith. It was perspective influenced by faith that empowered Brother Job to endure the suffering as long as he did. It is perspective influenced by faith that empowers me to make the choice that I have made. If I did not live with all certainty and assurance that I too will see God with my own eyes and in my own flesh, that I too shall yet appear before him dressed in the robes robes of righteousness of Christ alone, with no good of my own to contribute to my reputation, then there would be no way for me to live this life, denying the ungodly passions that I feel almost every day. Like Job, my heart faints within me at the thought. My perspective has been changed, so my life too has been changed and is still being changed. I will see God. And every true-born child of God knows this with a certainty that is sometimes unexplainable, but just as real as breathing is necessary to us. I don't want to be gay because I will see God. I can't be gay because I have seen Jesus, and seeing him changed everything. It changed me. Colossians 3.3 says this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears... Then shall you also appear with him in glory. The truest thing about me is not who I'm attracted to sexually or how and with whom I perform in bed. The truest thing about me is Jesus Christ. The crucified but risen and all-powerful Savior, Son of God. I am not called to be heterosexual or homosexual. I'm called to be holy. And if you are in Christ Jesus, then this is also true of you too. And having said that, what I would say in closing is being a person who grew up in the church and we never really dealt with sexuality or or anything, and that's something that the church needs to repent of as well. But I know what it's like to sit in churches for your whole life in silence and feel like you're screaming with your mouth shut. And so my exhortation to the silent struggler is that if you're in this place, there are people here that can help you walk this, through this journey and that, you, that won't leave you alone in this struggle and in this fight. And so I hope, God helping you, that you will find the courage and the humility because healing doesn't happen in the dark. Healing can only happen in the light. And that requires that you verbalize whatever you hide has power over you. And feelings buried alive never die. And so I hope that you will hear God's voice and that you'll find the strength to share your struggle and find help and hope in someone who will walk alongside of you. Amen.